Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles this morning, grab those and do not turn to Ephesians for the first time in over a year. Turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue on our series in clarity. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the mission uh, that Jesus has given his church this morning and really going to spend most of the time on uh, what makes that mission possible. And so uh, I'm going to invite Becky Smith up to read today's passage. I love that Dustin applauded for her. Thank you, Dustin. And uh, if you get to Luke chapter 9, grab one of the, there's, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in front of you. Uh, grab one of those and get to Luke 9, and then Becky will read uh, with 18 through 25, I believe. So if you're physically capable, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Thank you, Becky. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your presence this morning. We're grateful for your word and the power of it. And we ask now that as we open it, God, that you would just be the one who speaks, that you would be the one who moves and convicts, and you bring us to a point of decision today, and that we, out of submission and surrender to you, would say yes to whatever you ask us. And Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, there are a few things in life that move faster than time. Right? We know this. Everybody tells you, man, life just, time just goes really fast. And yet, somehow it's still deceptive because we rarely noticed how fast time is moving when we're in it. But every now and then, we, we get a little glimpse of this, right? It's happened to me twice recently. Um, I was watching uh, uh, these clips of a show called NFL 100, and it was just talking about the 100 greatest players in the NFL, and, and the clip I was watching was about Peyton Manning. Now, growing up in uh, the Parks household, I probably saw almost, if not every, Peyton Manning game that he played for the Colts, right? And it didn't feel like it was that long ago. It feels like he just retired not long ago, and yet they were, started playing these highlights of his career, and my brain was like, why does that look like it was filmed like 25 years ago? And then I realized, wait, it was more than 20 years ago, right? Um, other, other time recently is, is I came across uh, reruns of, of a show that was the number one show in America when I was in high school. And this was, the, this was Seinfeld. And I saw, I saw the reruns of the show, and it looks, man, it looks like they use cameras from like 1800, right? It, I mean, it's not an HD. It's like, wow. And the clothes and styles are way, I was like, what is happening? I don't feel like I'm that old, but apparently I am. But there's one episode in Seinfeld that I always remember, um, there's a character in the show named George who, uh, who's at this, in this episode, he was just down the dumps uh, because he decided that his life was the opposite of what he wanted it to be. And so the only conclusion that he could come to was that every decision he'd ever made and every instinct he ever had was wrong. 
right? And so talking through this with his friends, that he, like, he came to an epiphany that if, to, in order to change his life, he needs to do the opposite of what he would ever do in every single situation. Right, and so it's, he starts ordering the opposite of the lunch that he would order. He starts wearing the opposite of the clothes he'd wear. And it culminates with him approaching a woman, because George would never approach a beautiful woman. And his opening line to her is this, my name is George, I'm unemployed, and I live with my parents. Right? And of course, it's a comedy, so it works, and she agrees to date him, which would never happen in real life. But have you ever been where George was? Like you, like you feel like you can't get out of your own way. That, that almost, maybe your life would be better off if you did the opposite of everything that you had done to this point. You see, there's a commonality among human beings that all of us continue to chase the same lie. And even when it's been exposed as a lie to some of us, it's like we can't help ourselves. We still pursue it. And what's worse is often when we find this lie to be lacking and unfulfilling, it's then that we double down in our pursuit of it. And the lie is this, that we know what is best for us. This is a big part of why Jesus was so transformational. You read in the Gospels how he always left crowds amazed and stunned and in awe because for the entirety of human history, his is the lone voice that spoke out against this lie. He and he alone revealed it for the deception it was, and part of his message was that everything is actually upside down. That the value structure and priorities and ideals of this world are actually the opposite of what they need to be. In fact, he opens his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with sayings like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are the meek and the humble. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Things nobody else would count as blessed. We're in this series called Clarity, and we're, we're in doing so, at the start of the year, start of the decade, we're seeking clarity on things that matter. And to this point, right, the first week, we, we talked about how you, it's impossible to vibrantly follow Jesus Christ apart from his word. And last week, if you hear, you know we talked about how it's impossible to be used by God and know God deeply apart from prayer. This week, we're to be looking at the, the mission that God has given his church. But in my experience, I'm going to be honest with you this morning. In my experience, the church knows its mission. Matthew 28 is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Anybody, and I mean anybody who's been in church for some time, could intellectually answer that question. What is the church's mission? But yet not every church and every member is successful at it, are they? In fact, the number of us that aren't doing this is higher than we'd like to admit or be comfortable with. And the fault is not with the mission. There is a secret sauce, if you will, that makes the mission possible, that makes it successful. It's the fuel behind it. And today's passage, Jesus is going to address that very thing. He's going to also address another idea that everybody had upside down. And in doing so, he's going to reveal the single greatest lie of the enemy for what it is. And so if you're here this morning, right, and yours is the loudest and most influential voice in your life, my prayer is that you will see why that's a problem. If you're here and you think it's by your ingenuity, by your cleverness, by your creativity that you're going to achieve success in life that will actually fulfill you. If you're here and you think that there's power in speaking your truth or chasing your desires or making your dreams priority above everything else, then I'm simply asking this morning that you would take a good, long look at the words of Jesus Christ. And if you could be honest with yourself, you'd admit that those ideals of self-glory and self-fulfillment never lead to peace and fulfillment and rest in your soul. 
In the passage that Becky read for us in Luke 9, Jesus asked his disciples a couple questions. By the way, good leaders ask questions. He didn't need to ask the question, right? He, he knows everything. He knew what the disciples were thinking. This opportunity uh, for asking questions was, was for them to wrestle with it themselves and process it. And the two questions are this. Who are others saying that I am? And the second question, who do you say that I am? And can I just tell you at the start this morning that, that that second question is way bigger than the first? That how you answer that question, who do you say Jesus is, is the single most important thing about you. Now, the first question, who do others say I am, uh, they answered, right? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're uh, Elijah. Some say you're another ancient prophet that's been uh, raised from the dead. By the way, all these are incredible answers. If Jesus were any of those things, all those titles would carry immense prestige, and they would all require resurrection. They're all people who already died, so this this would require something miraculous, somebody who was sent by God. That list of answers would be a compliment to anybody who's ever lived except one. There's only one ever that these answers would not be sufficient for, and it's the exact person that they were talking about. So then Jesus brings his disciples. All right, who do you say I am? And Peter answers on behalf of the group, you're the Messiah. And by the way, that's a loaded title. The Messiah was the promised one of God. The Messiah was sent from God. The Messiah was the son of God. The Messiah was the one the nation of Israel had been waiting hundreds of years for. And by the way, they weren't wrong. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2, at his birth, what the angel said? Today, in the town of David, a Savior has, was born for you who is what? The Messiah, the Lord. Right? So they get it right. They nail This is the biggest news that would have ever existed in their day. The Messiah is here. And yet, what do we find in the next verse? Look at verse 21 again in Luke 9. So right after they make this proclamation, Jesus does this. He strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. What is Jesus doing? Well, we see there's a widely held belief about the Messiah. The Messiah was a position of prestige in this belief. It was a position of honor and earthly success, that all his plans would succeed, that it would all be for the good of him and for the good of Israel. Because in this widely held belief about the Messiah, the Messiah was an earthly king who would know nothing but success. He would form an army and overthrow Rome and establish Israel as the dominant nation in the, in the world and rule over the world. And everybody, everybody wanted a taste of it. Everybody wanted to be close to that. Even the disciples believed this view of the Messiah. Mark chapter 10, uh, in 35 to 38, uh, James and John, these are two Jesus' disciples, come to Jesus and approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And that's a bold start, isn't it, right? And so Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? And they answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. You know what they're saying there? When you establish your kingdom, your earthly kingdom, you're ruling over the world, right? We want to sit on both sides of you. And Jesus says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And then in verse 41, the other ten hear about this. They know about James and John's request, and they begin to be indignant with James and John. See, what's happening in this scene in Mark 10 is there's two disciples who are asking to sit next to him when he's ruling his kingdom. And they think it's going to be an earthly kingdom because he's the Messiah. And the other ten are both angry at them for asking and upset that they didn't think of asking first. And if you read the rest of John 10, Jesus postures this. Guys, none of you know what you're talking about. Because the most popular view can still be the wrong one and often is. 
It's the same then as it is now. Just because something is widely accepted and widely heralded doesn't make it right. Many times it's a sign that it isn't. And yet there's this heightened and intensified view in our day that groupthink, the most popular idea, rules the day. Right? It's, it's where popular opinion is now formed and then demands, right? Whoever's in the position of popular opinion demands complete and total acceptance. And people, or else they're going to have nothing to do with you. And people have rightly labeled our culture nowadays as a cancel culture. Either you line up with popular opinion or we will have nothing with you. And in this rational discourse, calm disagreement, they are simply things of the past. Either you agree with me or I will discard you with some label meant to identify you as unworthy of ever holding an avowed opinion again. And in this sort of climate and culture, right, people are rushing to line up with the majority opinion because they know how dangerous it is to be outside of it. Because there's no more tolerance, there's no more nuance allowed. It's either complete submission to popular thought or you're worthless. And there's a phrase that's used a lot in this. Maybe you've heard this phrase. I've heard it many times. Is that you need to get on the right side of history. Man, every time I hear that phrase, my mind goes to a scene described for us in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 10 says this. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father you know what Philippians 2 is describing for us there? It's describing for us the scene when Jesus is going to be revealed fully to all who has ever lived. In that moment, every single knee that has ever lived will bow before Jesus Christ and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And I need you to understand there's only one way to be on the right side of history. It is submitting your will and your life and your soul to the truth and grace and lordship of Jesus, whether it's popular or not, whether acceptable or not, whether it's easy and celebrated or not. Right? Because groupthink, you will find that groupthink and popular opinion is not all that it's cracked up to be. This view of the Messiah, that he was an earthly ruler, that he'd have a life of ease and he would have earthly success was simply wrong. It was just flatly wrong. There's no way about it. And Jesus corrects it for his guys in verse 22. Look at verse, chapter 9, verse 22. He's saying it's necessary. Jesus goes on. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus is trying to get his disciples, trying to get us to understand that the way to life is through death. It's a common experience among human beings that we all want to be part of something bigger than us. Right? We don't want to just be reconciled to God. We want to be used by God. And we had a choice. We Deep down we had a choice between making an actual difference in this life or sitting on our couch. We'd have a desire to make a difference assuming it didn't cost us too much. In fact, even buried deep under our apathy and our cynicism and our defeated state later in life is, is a longing to be a part of something epic. We want to know what it is to experience life to the full. And so all of us feel, we can all identify with what we read from Paul in Philippians 3.10 where he says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. Yes, to, to not just know God, 
right? But to know of God, but to actually know him and then experience his power, even the power that rose Jesus from the dead. Imagine what that might look like in your life and in your home and in your career and your circumstance. Who doesn't want that power in their life? Who doesn't want to taste of that? Who doesn't want to experience that? It's the same as the people of Israel. They wanted life and they wanted it to the fullest. And in their view, being subjected to Rome wasn't life to the fullest. Right? Their view, that means, they assume that meant an earthly ruler for Israel that would make their existence more comfortable, more affluent. But when we want these things, we want life to the fullest, we don't actually know what we're asking. Because Paul continues writing Philippians 3. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. And then listen to this. And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach resurrect- the resurrection from among the dead. Wait, what now? Fellowship of his sufferings? Conformed to his death? That doesn't sound very powerful, does it? You remember that scene we read for you a few moments ago in Philippians 2, where every knee bows before Jesus, every tongue confesses that he's Lord? The verses that immediately precede those tell us why Jesus gets all of that. And it says that Jesus, who was God, set aside the benefits of being God, and he humbled himself, and he took on the form of a man, and he was obedient to God's plan by dying on the cross. And whenever you read that, I want you to understand that means he was whipped, and he was beaten, and he was nailed, and he was pierced, and he suffered excruciatingly on the cross. And Philippians 2.9 says, for that reason, because he did all that, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So then, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Time and time again, we are offered the power of God. Time and time again, we are offered the full experience of him in our lives. Think of some of the verses you, you know and cling to. 2 Corinthians 5, anyone who's in Christ, they are a new creation. For the old is gone, the new has come. Romans 6, that just as Jesus was buried in his death and raised to walk in newness of life, so we are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, the power that God used to raise Jesus is alive in you. We claim these verses, we love these verses, but somewhere along the way we lost sight of a no-brainer equation. And the equation is this, death always precedes resurrection. There is no raising without dying first. And so it makes perfect logical sense that in order to experience such power, we must die first. But not a physical death. Listen to Jesus continue in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, this wasn't just disciples, the entire crowd. If anyone wants to follow after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. Man, do you you want this morning, do you want to experience the fullness of God's power in your life? Do you want to know life and what Jesus calls life to the fullest? Do you want a peace that abides through every circumstance? Do you want a joy that is undefeated? Do you want to be one of those people that are seemingly untouchable? Do you want to be used by God in in ways that you never thought was possible? Do you want to join a mission in the kingdom that's so much bigger than you? Jesus gives us the equation right here. It's really simple. Death first, then resurrection. We have to die to self, and we start by denying ourselves. he says. There's nothing that you can do about being the most available voice in your life. There's nothing you can change about it. You you never have to wonder what your opinion is on something. You never have to ask what you want to do. But there comes with that an inherent danger in letting you guide you. 
The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17 that our hearts are deceptive and wicked beyond cure. It tells us in Romans 1 that sin has depraved our minds, right? We don't actually know what's best for us. Thankfully, we have a God who does and has revealed himself fully to us in Jesus and his word. He's given us his spirit. So listen, life and freedom and deliverance and joy comes from submitting to him. And it's in those moments, right, where, where our desires don't match his where our feelings don't match his truth, or our wants don't match his wisdom, it's then that we must deny ourselves and submit to him. This is what you've been called to. Romans 12 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Let me ask you, is that how you view your life? That you are an offering to God? That you are living sacrifice to him. Where you say, God, I laid down my wants, I laid down my desires, I laid down my wishes and my dreams, I laid down my opinions, and I submit to and surrender to the kingship of Jesus. I am a sacrifice to you. I'm trusting that you are better for me than me, and so I'm going to die to self. We do this by denying ourselves. We do this, Jesus says, by taking up our cross daily. You understand the cross is an instrument of death, don't you? To take it up is to be a sacrifice. And there's a key word he uses there, and it's daily. This is an ongoing battle. You may have taken up your cross today. Tomorrow morning, you'll have to choose again whether or not you're going to take it up. Because the problem, the problem with living sacrifices is we keep trying to climb off the altar. This is why we have such a huge need of grace. This is why we consistently need uh, to practice repentance. This is why we need the church. It's why we need reminders. why we need community, encouragement, and accountability. Because without these, we have no chance to continue dying to self. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and simply to follow him. By the way, the word follow there is key. He's out in front and he's not asking for input or directions. Right? To follow is really to surrender. It's to surrender my life. It's to surrender my career. It's to surrender my ability. It's to surrender my opinions. It's to surrender my gifts and resources and di- desires and thoughts and attitudes. It's to lay them down before him. And the posture is simply this. Just have your way, God. Have your way in me. Have your way in my life. Have your way in my future. Have your way in my marriage and my home. Whatever you want to do. Are you old enough to remember the big what would Jesus do bracelet fad? Right? Those took the nation by storm, and man, were they cheesy. Okay? But they were a step in the right direction, weren't they? Because to surrender is to live life trying to emulate him. It's to ask yourself in situations, man, how, how would Jesus react to this? What would he want me to do in this situation? How, how, how does he want me to arrange my life and my priorities and my calendar? And man, it's simple. Death precedes resurrection. If we really want to experience his power, we have to die to self first. And his is the only prize worth having. Look at verse 25. What does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his very self? Man, I want you to understand from Jesus this morning, this is not just some masochistic call to self-sacrifice. There is something deep inside you that has been created only for him. Without finding life in Jesus Christ, you will never, ever, ever be fully satisfied. 
There might be some things that thrill you or distract you or excite you or satisfy you for a brief time, but ultimately every single one of them will be revealed as empty because only Jesus Christ can satisfy the longing in your soul. In John 4, he puts it this way. He says, whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. That's an incredible statement. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And I can tell you this morning, this entire place exists because we found that to be true. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to the earth to embrace death and was resurrected. And he died to pay, to pay the debt that we owe God for our sins. He took our place so that instead of hell, our souls can exist forever in heaven with him. And you've been given this one life, this brief window to find him, to trust him, to believe in him, and to follow him. And to lose your soul by pursuing other things, even if you somehow gain this entire world, is the worst trade that you could ever make. And by the way, after you know him, to keep settling for worldly things instead of following him more deeply is also a really terrible trade to make. He's the prize. And what comes with knowing him and what comes with following him is incomparable. So what do we do with all this? Three, three things and then we'll close. Number one, stop trusting yourself. There are so many people, so many, who miss out on what God wants to do in their life because they simply can't get over themselves. And I, I want to be honest with you this morning. I am a terrible guide for my own life. I make a terrible God for me. You understand, don't you, that nobody in my life has been worse to me than me. Nobody's caused me more pain than me. Nobody's ruined more things for me than me. Nobody has lied to me more than I have lied to myself. And so why would I ever trust myself for joy? Why would I ever trust myself for fulfillment and purpose in life? We are, as a human race, and always have been entirely too impressed with what we think and what we feel and what we believe. And what is offered to us is an eternal kingdom and mission that makes a real difference. What is offered to us is a chance to know God and be fulfilled by God himself. And to do so, we have to do the opposite of what our sin-stained selves want to do. We have to get over us and surrender our will and surrender our decisions and surrender our lives to the kingship of Jesus Christ. Secondly, to go deeper, we've got to stop seeing cost as a negative we have so, so, in America, American believers have, have just become paralyzed by costs. We avoid really great things because we don't want the upfront cost or sacrifice that's involved. We are willingly making the decision to choose lesser things because they're easier. And man, this is not what we've been called to. Matthew 13, here's how Jesus describes his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And listen to this. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he had and he buys that field. Jesus is telling that his kingdom, what he's offering is better than anything else. In fact, it's so much better that it's worth giving up everything else in your life for. And yet we too often find ourselves afraid of and paralyzed by cost. We have opportunity after opportunity to go to obey, to go deeper in our faith, to experience a new level of connection and surrender. And we take a pass because there's something that we don't want to do or something that we don't want to give up. It's just too hard. 
We're actively settling for less than what God offers us because we believe our lie that our way is better and easier. And the reality is this, that any cost that advances the kingdom of God is not a cost at all. Anything that gets us more of Jesus Christ isn't really a sacrifice, right? Because we just have to remember why we sold everything to buy the field. We have to take our focus off of the cost and put it on the gain. And, and nobody, nobody, I would argue, since Jesus has endured more or sacrificed more or gave up more for the kingdom than the Apostle Paul. And his letter to Philippi, he gives us this really simple equation where we find out why he was able to do so. Philippians 1, he writes this. He says, for, to me, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, whatever this life brings, whatever it brought, right? If it brought more of Christ, it was worth it to Paul. And if it killed him, even better. Because it brought him completely in the presence of Jesus. And what that view tells you is there was no losing for Paul. There was no cost. Either way, it was gained, and the same experience is offered to you and me. That there are all kinds of ways for us to embrace cost that isn't really costs. And listen to me, we can't be afraid of this because the need is great. We are at war, and there are souls bound for hell. Yes, Jesus Christ has purchased for you, and there is waiting for you and a state of eternal rest, but you are not there yet. You aren't. While you're here, we've got to stop being paralyzed by cost. You can start today by simply doing this, by committing to do something you previously have not or previously would not have done. Listen to me, the opportunities to serve the church and its mission are endless, and yet many people take a path. The opportunities to serve the kingdom of God daily in your life are endless, and yet many people never get outside their own deal. The opportunities to surrender our lives to Jesus are endless, and yet many never give him total control, holding on to this little area of life that they want to keep control over. Today, what I'm asking is this. Today, will you simply give him a yes to up to this point you've resisted? Will you surrender something that you've long held on to, even though you know he wants it? Will you embrace the cost that you haven't yet been willing to embrace? You might, want, might not want to. In fact, if you haven't yet, you don't want to. Will you, will, will you be willing to push that aside today and say yes and trust him and ask him to change your attitude and increase your joy? That's me. There is no life in chasing your own ones. Pursuing your own glory, pursuing your own comfort, pursuing your own ease and success are vastly overrated. But what is incredibly underrated is anything that gets you more of Jesus. What's incredibly underrated is opening your home to orphans and foster kids. What's incredibly underrated is doing whatever you can to support those who are in that battle. What's incredibly underrated is serving in the church basement when it's so much easier to be upstairs. What's incredibly underrated is dealing with screaming babies so their parents can hear the gospel, maybe for the first time. It's incredibly underrated to sharing your faith with somebody who needs it, someone whose soul is currently bound for hell. What's incredibly underrated is you having the humility to admit that you were wrong. 
What's incredibly underrated is walking in obedience, especially when it means giving something up. What's incredibly underrated is pushing off a purchase that you want to buy in order that you can give to the kingdom. What's incredibly underrated is brown bagging your lunch for a while so that you can sponsor a child or a missionary. What's incredibly underrated is taking a trip overseas to share the love of Jesus Christ and let that transform the way you view this world. What's incredibly underrated is giving God the first couple of years after you graduate from college before pursuing your career saying, Lord, you have two years, do whatever you want through me. What's incredibly underrated is the laying down of your desires and dreams and plans to pursue his. What's incredibly underrated is anything that comes along your way that could get you more of Jesus. Because it's in those moments, whether they're big or small, it's in those places and spaces where we die to self that we are resurrected and raised in resurrection power. And what takes the place of that which died is so much better than what was there before. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the life that Jesus calls us to. And that's what so many people pass on because they don't want to die first. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads in prayer for a moment. Before I do, I'm just going to ask for a show of hands and a few questions. And it'll help me, it'll help me as a pastor pray for you this morning. Nobody else looking but me. I'm wondering how many of you this morning would be willing to admit that you are the biggest hindrance in your life to following Jesus more deeply. That it's you that gets in your own way. Thank you, you can put those down. Secondly, I'm wondering how many people would admit this morning that you actively avoid cost way too much in your life. If you're willing to raise your hand and just admit that this morning to the Lord. Thank you. And then lastly, I have to ask this question because it's way too important not to. Is there anyone here who's ready to give their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time, trusting him for salvation? If that's you, would you please raise your hand? Father, you've seen these hands this morning. God, you, you've seen us lay bare and by our own physical response, Lord, we as a church have laid bare before you our confession and mission that we are the biggest hindrance in our lives to following you. God, we've, we've laid bare before you, raising hands, saying, yes, I actively avoid cost way too much in my life. And yet, Lord, we have in the face of that your son saying, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. God, I ask that you make FB in a church that is not paralyzed by cost. God, you make FB in a church that reminds us, constantly reminds ourselves why we sold everything to buy the field. You'd make us a church that believes at the core of our being that you are the prize, that there's nothing this world can offer us that compares to what you offer us. And that that belief, deep in our core, would shape the way we live our lives. It would shape the things that we do. It would shape our surrender. It would shape our sacrifice. It would shape our service to you. That we would say way more yeses to you than no's. That we would embrace way more costs than punting them to someone else. That we would live on mission because we believe that death precedes resurrection. Do this in our midst. And do this for your glory, Lord. We pray.
pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm Shauna Ballman, and I am going to be the advocate administrator for Fostering Hope, which is going to be the care communities for FBN.